Aubrey Bergauer is the Vice President of Strategic Communications and Executive Director at the Center for Innovative Leadership at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Aubrey, I've really been looking forward to this. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Hi, good to be here. So we're just going to dive right in, and I'm going to ask you, when I say audience engagement, what comes to mind? There's so many ways we can answer that question. I think audience engagement is everything. Everything about really user experience is how I would translate that. And so that means everything from the very first interaction we have with a potential patron, because if they're not a patron yet, because it's their very first interaction, you know, what is that? Probably something online is the answer. All the way through cultivating that relationship, that online journey, that first ticket purchase, that first in-person visit when they come, and that visitor experience, you know, all of that is audience engagement. And then if that's just sort of the beginning, then it's how do we continue to engage and audience engagement means how do we build a relationship over time and how do we make sure that a first visit isn't a one-off bucket list thing and instead it's the beginning of something that somebody wants to repeat and form a habit of so i think audience engagement is all of those things yeah and that's what i i one of the things that i find so compelling about your perspective is that um you're you're thinking about things sort of persistently over time um and uh, I don't know if this has been your experience, but sometimes I find that, that when people think about audience engagement, they, they look for clues in the moment. You know, I think of um, people looking at like, well, how are people behaving in a moment, which is a little bit different. I see what you're saying. Yeah, like, um, could this, I guess if we're talking museums, could this exhibit get more attendance or interaction or could this online post get more engagement, quote unquote? Is that, is that what you mean? It's normally like a snapshot that we sort of look at versus yeah a snapshot is a good way good way to put it you know um are they asking questions on the tour you know things like that yes i see yeah 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 whereas what what i find so interesting about in these articles that you've written that that i'll link to again in the show notes um you're you're looking at things over this extended period of time um what i'd be curious to hear what some of the how that sort of took root for you and, and what were any of the obstacles that you encountered in trying to, to implement that vision? There are many statistics, definitely in the performing arts industry. So hopefully I'll share some of these and there might be parallels that come to mind in the museum world, but statistics that have just been really alarming to me and, and in my opinion should be alarming to the whole field, which was the impetus for thinking about this model. So those are statistics such as at orchestras nationwide in America, 90% of first-time attendees never come back again. And that's crazy when we say we need new audiences, we need younger audiences, and that's not true. What's true is we're actually very good at attracting new audiences, and we are very bad, 90% bad, at retaining them. So. That's one statistic that made me really think, okay, it's not about acquisition. It's about engagement over a longer term of that we've got to have them come back again. Otherwise, we're just in the single ticket business. And that's in no way setting us up for, in the performing arts, it would be subscribers and then ultimately donors. And so, of course, the museum equivalent members, donors. And so another statistic that was sort of bubbling in my head was, 
we know in the performing arts, if we can get somebody to attend a second time within 12 months of their first visit with us, already their lifetime value skyrockets. Just a second visit within a year of their first visit makes such a difference. And I thought, okay, that means that the next step for somebody who comes once is to get them to come back again, not solicit for a donation, but come back again. And so then you put that with other stats in the industry. Okay, if we do get somebody to become a subscriber, which if they've been twice in a year, again, their, their loyalty does increase and they are more likely to be a subscriber. Okay, once somebody does become a subscriber, those season ticket holders, uh, first year season ticket holders don't renew at about 50%. So that's another big drop off point. We've done so much work to get somebody to subscribe and then to know that half of them in their first year will not come back. That's a real red flag. So you start putting all of that together. And then lastly, the number one prospect for donors in the performing arts are those season ticket holders. And so it, to me, when I start chaining all of that together, the model sort of screams at me of like, we've got to be developing these next step relationships and how do we get somebody to engage again? And then what does that look like again? And then what, is that, what does that look like next after that? And so from there, I felt like, okay, I've got a really clear plan emerging in my mind of like, what is that journey I want? Or to use our word, what does engagement look like over, over time? And in my words, I always say over the long haul. How did you mentioned UX research there at the beginning? How did that, how does that played out for you? In, in my whole career, I feel like I've been a part of a lot of research, sort of in air quotes, meaning patron surveys, focus groups, working with firms to do all of that. And that's fine. And there's a place for all of that. But at the California Symphony, what I did in terms of user experience research is went to truly new people. And again, it was that same statistic, 90% of them aren't coming back. And I thought, why, why is this happening? So instead of a survey, which we always send out to the people we already have in our databases, it sort of becomes this echo chamber of like, okay, it's already the people who have engaged answering the survey and the people who are most connected to us and most engaged really are the ones responding to the survey. So, so surveys just have such a response bias issue that I've become very uninterested in, in, the, in those results to answer this question of why aren't you coming back and, and, and designing for experience. So we sought out to find people who truly were new. We said, you are the type of person who should come to the orchestra, meaning you are smart, you're culturally aware, you have expendable income, you do go to other live entertainment options. We said, if that's you, but for whatever reason you don't come to the symphony, we wanna hear from you. And through doing that and really speaking to truly new people, the answers we got in a focus group were so different than any other quote unquote survey or research tool I had used before in my life. And so that became just a real turning point for me professionally of realizing, wow, there's so much we do starting online with that first visit all the way through the ticket purchase path and then all the way to the on-site experience that was so off-putting, unwelcoming, unfamiliar to somebody who is trying to engage with us for the first time. So the challenge that you raise there is one that I hear so often among museum folks, which is like, you know, the habit is to issue these surveys. And as you point out, they're always going to the same people who are like already there. So, 
So how did you overcome that obstacle of, of getting to those, those new audiences? This is a social media success story. We made a little blog post saying, this is what we're going to do. And pretty much literally, as I just spelled it out for you is what we put online. If you're this type of person should go to the symphony, but don't, you know, all that we said, we really want to hear from you. And we told them, this is what we're going to do. And we said, you know, we want you to come to some performances. There's one in particular that's a required performance just so that there would be a shared experience from which to base the discussion. And we said, we'll feed you pizza and beer and, you know, guide you through this discussion when we all meet. And so, like I said, pretty much just spelled it out, posted that online. And I got to say, <laughs> you want to get a bunch of people sharing something virally online, say you want feedback on how to make the orchestra better. So probably you could swap that out with museum. <laughs> and I imagine that there will be just as many people saying, yeah, I want to speak up and, you know, tell you how I feel about this. And so just very organically that spread. And we had people reaching out saying, you know, going through the channels we had put out there to tell us they wanted to participate saying, yeah, I'm in. So. When you proposed that, um, or, or you started doing that, I, I, what was that like? I mean, did you, did you encounter any resistance? In resistance, you mean in terms of participants or internally? Internally. Or board? Okay. And um, internally, no. I was the executive director, so that helped because I was able to say, this is what we're doing. And the board was fine. They, I mean, to be honest, I just told them we're going to do some customer research. They were like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. So, and, and I had a board that was very allowing of me to you know that was sufficient for them to hear and that was fine so it is nice to when you get to make those decisions from the top and i think they should often be made from the top i would say if somebody's interested in doing a project like this and not in the top leadership role and then therefore does have to sort of manage up this idea i think you know it is useful to use this as a case study it's useful also there are different ways to do this there are free way we did this for almost no cost at all it's like the cost of pizza and beer essentially is what it cost us um at a bigger organization maybe somebody would want to hire a facilitator and you know i've been in those positions too where we have hired somebody to lead focus groups for us so i just say all this to say that i think there are different ways to shop the idea around to make it palatable and um easy hopefully to shop around internally one of the things that was most that was so compelling to me about um your long haul model that uh, article um was that you you were describing this challenge of measuring engagement and um some of the sort of can you describe some of the sort of radical steps i think you took to get there uh to get people on sort of the same page quote unquote I think so often in our institutions, we do try to measure engagement by what I would say are probably the wrong metrics or wrong KPIs. So I'll start with that and then share what I did to try to combat that. I think so much of the time we're looking at total attendance, whether that's at a performance or at an exhibit or annual attendance or whatever, you know, it's like, how many people are we serving? Is that growing? Okay, well, if we serve a lot of people once, and our mission is to, collective mission is to cultivate lifelong loyal lovers of the art we produce, serving a lot of people once is a really bad metric. So 
there's that. I think also organizations measure things like uh, how many people were on that solicitation, whether that's a single ticket postcard or a development appeal. To give some examples, you know, we say how many people did this go out to, or how many organizations did I do that list trade with, and how many people did we did we get on this quote unquote prospect list? And instead, I would contend that a better metric is how are we building a prospect list and so that our response rate is higher than before. In other words, in other words, how are we creating a list that has qualified leads, not just quantity of leads? And so for us, that meant, and in terms of the long haul model, it meant really paring down those lists actually. So we were saving a lot of money in terms of who we were mailing to both on the marketing side and on the development side and seeing our response rates go up because those lists were more qualified. And so it was like we were saving money on the expense side, generating equal if not more amounts of money on the revenue side. And very quickly that became sort of this flywheel of, of success that we were then willing to enable to invest back into the user experience and <laughs> addressing some of these issues that we had heard from the focus group. So hopefully that sort of gives the idea of the right metrics or, or, or wrong metrics. And I guess to summarize, I would say it's metrics that measure loyalty or engagement. That, that's what we should be looking I'm at. I'm going to put on my museum educator hat here for a second and um, say, you know, I'm, I'm not in uh, marketing or development. Um, and, you know, I'm really about, I'm all about, um, you know, meeting our educational goals and making sure that we are um, engaging the community on that level. Um, so I'm not sure how all these metrics add up for my goals. That's a good question. I think in some ways, the goals should be aligned, maybe in many ways, because really what I'm talking about when I think about the user experience, that's not just a marketing thing or a development thing. That is really an institutional mind shift. And for most organizations, an institutional culture shift. And so I would say then for the education team, I believe education is in many ways synonymous with marketing. If we are doing our jobs educating people at any age, then if we're doing that well, we are we are priming that group to be ready to enjoy the artistic experience we are offering. And therefore, if they enjoy that experience, if they're coming in with more familiarity about what we are doing, they're more likely to enjoy that and then want to come back again. And so I think when you look at it that way, suddenly education becomes almost the foundation for the entire long haul model because it only helps us build and be more successful on top of that. Tell me a little bit about because uh, what we're what we're what I'm starting to envision as I hear you talk is this sort of um, these sort of silos between these different departments, right? Marketing has their objectives, education has their objectives. How do you tackle that? I talk a lot about breaking down silos. I think for all kinds of nonprofits and arts organizations within the nonprofit sector, we are so siloed in what we do, just as you described, and. In order to do this work well, we've got to break those silos down. So at my last, I'll give two examples, my last job and my current job. My last job, I created a director of patron loyalty. And that person was over both marketing in the, the traditional sense, as well as over low-level annual fund. So they were seeing the relationship from single ticket buyers to season ticket holders to 
first time and low level donors. And so it redrew those department lines that are normally very, very siloed de development marketing. And the reason for that is I believe that annual fund, especially low level annual fund is very similar to marketing. All the skills are the same, in fact. And when you think about, they're both mass communications. They both use the same mediums, meaning direct mail, maybe some digital online to support that, email support, uh, sometimes calls, whether it's telefunding or telemarketing. So all those mediums, again, are the same. And, and the sort of transactional process, this is, is the same. All of those things are designed to elicit an emotional response that drives a transaction, whether that's ticket sale or donation. So I really think that low-level annual fund is the skills are so synonymous with strong marketing. And so I grouped all of that into one. And then where the breakdown or break, not breakdown, break happens in terms of organizational structure is when we start moving donors up the ladder and moving them into more one-on-one -on -one relationships. So moving them toward those major donor relationships. And then that is a different skill set because, and which is why then I broke that out into the different sort of remain, remaining development team, major gifts, institutional fundraising, you know, grants, corporations, all of that I kept sort of as more and more traditional development. But that's one way that the silos can be broken down is just really considering what are the functions and what are these outcomes and how do we align our institutional structure org chart to, to work toward that. Here at now that I'm at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, of course I come in and they say, Aubrey, what are we going to do? You talk about the long haul model. What do we do at a, at a higher ed institution? And so what we're working toward and haven't completely rolled out yet is also some sort of position that that is between marketing and advancement. And what does that look like? And that gets and when we start thinking about breaking down silos, Kyle, it does get a little messy because it's like, do they report to both? Like, what do we do? You know, and it's like, okay, this is a problem that can be solved. It is okay if we work together and create a joint position that serves both departments. And in fact, the whole position is designed to do that and designed to steward those relationships. And here, because ticket revenue is not a huge revenue, there's not a huge revenue goal attached to tickets. Uh, it almost means that like the entirety of the ticket sale is really to be that pipeline to go straight into advancement. And so, so many of these principles are the same, except it's just the, there's less revenue attached at the beginning of the relationship. And so it's like, okay, is there a position that can do some of these things for us? Invite people to come back again, invite them to whatever the next step here is as a higher ed institution. So anyways, I just say all that to say that, yeah, it takes people to do this work. And I think that means sometimes looking at how do we draw draw or redraw our department lines. That's so great. I, you know, as I hear you talk, like a theme sort of throughout this is, is I hear you talking about behavior over and over and over again, right? And and what I, I haven't heard you say yet is anything about like this or that demographic quite so much, um, even though that could be valuable. Like what I hear is the emphasis on the behavior. Can you talk about that? That's a great observation. So many times people say, well, what have you done to reach fill in the blank demographic? Whether that's an age demographic, what have you done for younger audiences? Or an ethnic demographic, what have you done to reach minorities in your community? Uh, and, and there is, I could definitely talk about some 
ethnicity specific work we've done, but as a whole, when we look at trends in consumer behavior, there are, there are trends that are far and wide that can help us in this work. And at the end, that makes our work easier because I'm not saying we'll go form the Young Patrons Club to try to reach millennials. I'm saying, no, there are things we can do in how we design for the outcomes we're wanting, which is loyalty, repeat engagement. There are things we can do that affect humans no matter what their age or, or, or ethnicity or, or, or whatever. So I think, yeah, I think that's a great observation that I really am focused on behavior and, the, and really believe that there are ways we can design for the desired behaviors we want. Uh, the random thought bubbling up in my head, something about maybe that I read in an article you wrote, something about um, blind performance review. I'm going to use the wrong word because I'm not in the symphony world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, um, I think it was something about like blind, blind performances or something. And so yeah, you're, you're probably blind auditions is what you were thinking. Yes. Of. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Blind. Yes. So that's, that's, that makes me think the same thing. Like, okay, so we're, we're setting the, I mean, behavior is a little mechanical, but you know, we're, we're blindfolded, right? We're setting what the performance is, um, not, you know, to guard against appearances in a sense. Yeah. So in the orchestra world, blind auditions, just for anybody who's not familiar with that, means that when a player is taking an audition for an open chair in the orchestra, almost always, it's definitely from professional orchestras, always this is the case. They're performing behind a screen so that their identity is concealed. And that has led to greater gender parity, uh, a little more underrepresented backgrounds coming into our orchestras. And it's usually used as a case study in like almost every business book as, a, as an example of a fair and equitable hiring practice. It's not perfect, but I'll spare you guys on the <laughs> getting into the weeds. But it, but it has shown to move the needle. And so what I think is interesting is how could we use that in our work for offstage positions or non-artistic mm -hmm. positions? And so we did that a couple ways at the California Symphony and that is even for we had a composer in residence and instead of all this normal stuff submit your resume submit your scores we said do all that but your name has to be any identifying information has to be redacted and so we sort of did this anonymous review emulating blind auditions and sure enough the first round applicant pool uh in this case we were trying to get more women to apply for that program our first round applicant pool went from 5% women to 20% women. And then with every round of blind review, 20% females advanced, sort of revealing to us that, yeah, I think this was an equitable and fair process given that that representation held through each round of review. I think also for our administrative jobs, we could totally do that. I would love to be at an organization where, um, you know, I spend the time working with HR. So hopefully I will get to that here at San Francisco Conservatory eventually where we say, okay, can we review all first round applicants with all identifying information removed? And even in a world where that's not possible, if we're at an organization that just doesn't have that infrastructure, I think there are different, definitely tips to help with that. Like we know research shows when somebody applies and they are, either a racial minority or uh, they are other in some way. Uh, if there's only one of them or few of them who sort of fit that category, then they don't advance through the different interview rounds as quickly. So there's a way to combat that, which is to say when we are building those first round interview pools, 
if we only have one person who's a woman or one person whose name looks like they are of a different ethnicity, go back to the stack. Like if we want to be forward thinking unbiased individuals, go back to the stack and say, who else like that can we add? Because all the research shows when you have more than one woman in the candidate pool, there's more odds that, that, that a woman will advance through the round. Same thing, if we have more than one black person, if we have more than one Latinx person, all of that. So um, anyways, I don't mean to get on my soapbox about it, but I just think there's <laughs> so much we can do towards building teams equitably and trying to trying to work around our own conscious or unconscious bias. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, you know, there, there is some sort of like virtuous cycle, I think you're describing there, which is, you know, like, um, I mean, in this case, it's, um, you know, blind auditions brings in more diverse performers and, uh, and, you know, then to uh, staffing, and then you get into audience. And, you know, I think that there, there feels like there's some sort of like nice circle of Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And it starts internally. When we start to diversify our internal teams, then we have the representation needed to be reflective of the communities we serve. Aubrey, I know we are out of time. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Where can people go to find out more about uh, your work? My website is aubreybergauer.com or on social media, Aubrey Bergauer on pick your channel of choice. I'm on all of them. <laughs> Great. All right. Um, Aubrey, thank you. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comes next. Well, thank you, Kyle. It was a pleasure.